I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Mudat Verdi, and Kyle Quass. This is episode 405 for Monday, September 17th, 2012. Today's guest is John Geggy, an Ottawa-based bassist, which I could not say five times fast or even probably one time fast. Thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to today's show. They are online at respectsextet.com. You'll also get a chance to see them live playing, if I'm not mistaken, the music of Rasan Roland Kirk, tomorrow, September 18th, at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City with another group called Load Bang. I think that starts at 7.30, and maybe it's 15 bucks unless you reserve ahead of time. But anyway, you can go to respectsextet.com for all those details. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and also to Rob Grundell for the Jazz or Bust logo. I am recording the intro to this show in New York City, where I arrived earlier this week from Canada. I spent some time in Ottawa and also in Montreal. And uh, I'm here till just a little bit later this week when I head down to Jackson, Mississippi, and then to Auburn, Alabama. Uh, while I'm in New York, I'm staying with a member of the show, and as I've said over and over again, other shows may have more members, but none have better members. None has? I don't know. <laughs> I know the jury's not out on that, but I'm going to be out on it because I'm not really sure. I think it's, let's see, so it's the same as no one has. Yeah, so none has better members than the jazz session. I think I really, I really screwed up that line by having to figure out how the grammar works. But anyway, a huge thanks to uh, Jonathan Motz for putting me up while I'm here in New York. And then I'm heading down to Mississippi to see uh, one of my closest friends. I'm super excited about that. And then also very excited to go back to Auburn for my third time in as many months. I went there on the way down south and back up north during the first part of the Jazz or Bust tour. And I'm going to go and uh, settle down there for a little bit, a couple of months hopefully, and figure out, you know, what's coming up next. This is a very live room I'm in, this kitchen. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's got a very nice echo. We should record a record here in this kitchen. What else do I need to tell you? Uh, let's see. The Jazz Session is available in iTunes. I am on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. Anything else? There's a mailing list at thejazzsession.com. I feel like I'm doing a very poor job. This is actually my second time through this intro, and I kind of feel like I'm doing it for the first time. Anyway, you know, you know the drill, right? Just go to thejazzsession.com and it's all right there. Uh, there's also poetry and tour diaries over at jasoncrane.org. I felt for a while, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, like I was hitting a bit of a dry spell where, where writing poetry was concerned. I was writing, but I really wasn't happy with anything that was coming out of my pen. But the last four or five things I've, I've kind of dug. I felt like I've gotten a little bit of my, uh, my game back. Uh, they're pretty uniformly depressing poems, <laughs> but, uh, well, maybe not the most recent one, but more or less they're depressing. But I feel like they've got some some decent, you know, kind of structure and content back, which I which I like. All right, that's it. Oh, no, there is one more thing. If you live in New York City and you want a copy of my book, 
there's only one bookstore on the face of the planet Earth where my book is for sale, and that bookstore is Babo's Books, which is actually just up the road from where I am right now. It's on Prospect Park West, about a block down from Prospect Avenue in the Windsor Terrace neighborhood. It's a, on a great block, by the way. There's the best bagels in New York City, and I'm saying that, and you can come after me if you want, but I'm right. Uh, at Terrace Bagels are right there. There's some great restaurants all along that block, and just at the end of it is Prospect Park. So why not make a day of it? Come down to the 15th Street Prospect Park stop on the F4G. Get off and go to Bobbo's Books, which opens at 11 a.m. Buy a copy of my book. Tell him I sent you. Tell Leonora I sent you. It's That's who you're going to see because she owns the bookstore, which is named after her dad, who was a jazz saxophone player. How can you not go to this bookstore and buy the book? And then go get some bagels at Terrace and take them to the park, and it'll be a lovely afternoon. So make that happen if you would. Get them while they're hot, both the bagels and the copies of my book. Okay, enough of that. Today's guest is John Geggy. He's a bassist who is based in Ottawa, although he also teaches in the States. And uh, he teaches, in fact, at the school where I very briefly uh, went to college uh, at the Crane School of Music in Potsdam and also elsewhere. But uh, in any case, I won't hold that against him because he's a very nice guy. Uh, he is also a very, very fine bassist, as you'll hear as we listen to some music from John Geggy and then our conversation. My guest is the bassist, John Geggy. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. We were, uh, before the tape started rolling, in fact, that, that in tape? itself is an anachronistic phrase, but before the tape started rolling, we were talking about a way of being introduced to jazz that unfortunately these days is is rarer and rarer. I don't think all that many kids coming up nowadays would have this same story that you have, but will you talk right. about one of these ways that you first started hearing jazz music? Well, I should actually go back one step that we talked about before we turned on the tape machine um, uh, was my dad, my parents were very much into music. 
they had lots of records. Uh, and dad had lots of records. He remembers when he was going to med school in the 50s in Montreal, going to see Oscar Peterson, playing at the, I can't remember, the Alberta Lounge. So he remembers that before Oscar was really discovered. Sure. But so I remember he had Duke Ellington, he had Oscar, he had various other people like that. So I got, uh, and definitely big band records and stuff like that. And he also, a close friend of our family's, had 78s. And so my dad and, and Jack Martin, they would get together and they would um, they would crush grapes because they're making wine or making beer. So like Monday night, they'd get together and do this at our house. And Jack would bring over 78s and dad got a needle for his, his Lenko turntable <laughs> so he could record. So this was my introduction to Jimmy Lunsford. Who would you find out? I mean, you know, Jimmy Lunsford was a pretty neat big band writer. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and was kind of out of the mainstream. So for me, it was a great opportunity to hear all kinds of people that I never would have heard before through this this thing. Is like, who, who would have 78s? Um, but what I was telling you about before was the fact well, that— Well, actually, before you go on, let me ask, were you, were you interested in the music at that time? I mean, were you— were you cognizant in some way of the fact that you were hearing this cool music? How were you reacting to it? What age are we talking about, and how were you reacting to it? Um, I was. I started taking piano lessons when I was six years old by from Miss Morrison, who was the church organist and had really scribbly handwriting. And I learned how to play piano in her parlor, uh, literally her parlor. Um, and uh, then I switched to trumpet, and I was a terrible trumpet player, really bad. But Another thing, I'll get back to the CBC thing in a moment, but that was an interesting thing of mentoring. I had a high school music teacher who was a trumpet player, and I was a bad trumpet player in the stage band, but he said, well, give me a reel-to-reel tape, I'll record you some music. And so he recorded for me uh, Chet Baker. She was too good for uh, She was too good for me. You were something, I can't remember. It's yeah. a CTI record. Uh, and a study in Brown by Clifford Brown mm -hmm. and an Art Farmer record. And... For me, when I was in high school, hearing Clifford Brown for the first time was, wow, this is astonishing trumpet playing. Like, and it was so musical. And Clifford and and Chet Baker and uh, and Art Farmer, those three trumpet players, they had a profound effect on me. And to me, it just pointed out the importance of having a good music teacher who, like, if he hadn't turned me on to that stuff. What would I be listening to? And it really turned things around. I was listening to other trumpet players. Uh, but to listen to those three when I was in high school, well, it proved to me that I could never be a trumpet player. But uh, <laughs> it was able to confirm something for me. But I really loved the music. Uh, the other thing um, about CBC was the fact that uh, in my youth, CBC had lots of jazz programs on. Uh, on a Saturday afternoon, there's a jazz program on coming out of Winnipeg for two for for two hours. I will so, just mention, just in case listeners don't know, that CBC is Canada's national yes network. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, and um, so I would listen to those uh, programs every afternoon and discover all kinds of people that I never would have known. Uh, it was my first introduction to the Bill Evans, Jim Hall duo record, Undercurrents. I remember hearing um, some other Art Farmer. I remember hearing some Super Sax in the program. I remember hearing, uh, oh gosh, there was a great program um, 
Commodore, the Commodore Jazz Series from 1940, whatever it is, with uh, Slam Stewart and Don Bias playing a duo. The idea, and at that time, I wasn't actually playing the bass. But to hear in 1945 or 1946, whatever it was, hearing them do a duo of uh, I Got Rhythm, tenor sax, and bass. And uh, so it was, that was an incredible education for me, and hearing that through the radio. Um, on CBC, they also used to have a program called That Mid- Midnight Jazz, and it was from midnight to 2 a.m. So I would set my watch and get up at, at midnight, and each night they had a different host. So they had a guy from Toronto, they had a guy from Halifax, who really li- he really liked big band music. They had someone from Vancouver who had more eclectic tastes. They had someone from Winnipeg and some, someone from Montreal. So each host had their thing they really liked. So it was a great opportunity to listen to all kinds of different kinds of music. And it was a case like they would play a side of a record. So it wasn't one cut at a time. And French CBC, Radio Canada, also had jazz programs as well. And... So for me, I come from uh, a village north of Ottawa, uh, a little village called Wakefield. And in that time, it was kind of isolated or not that many people. It wasn't really, it was a big deal to come to Ottawa. And so for me, it was an incredible education of having the radio there to, to, to learn about all kinds of different improvised music. It was a great learning experience for me that still resonates for me today. Starting at what age were you listening to these shows, would you say? I would say probably 10 years old. Because I started playing trumpet when I was nine, and I continued playing trumpet badly for another three or four years. Then I switched to another instrument that I played badly. <laughs> but it sounds like even by that young an age, the the sound of jazz was in your ear, was something. I mean, yes. You were seeking it out, you were yes. setting your watch to get up and listen to this music. Yes. At the same time, my parents were very supportive and helpful because they had lots of records in their record collection. So uh, my dad, who my parents pretty much liked classical music, like Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, those people, um, which who I, I adore, which is great. But dad also had a recording of The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky. So that was an interesting thing that he made the point of going out of buying a record. I'm sure he didn't put it on that often, but the simple fact that he had that music in the house and we had Debussy, we had all kinds of other people. Uh, it was uh, from a very early age, I was being exposed to lots of different kinds of music and, and understanding what things I had more of a preference for other things that took me longer to get into and ultimately being very satisfied with that. As far as jazz or improvised music was concerned, I would say from about nine onwards, 
I was finding out about jazz, and when I went to high school, obviously there was, you know, the stage band program there and things like that, which is where I had this high school teacher make me a recording of some Art Farmer and Chet Baker and and, uh, and Clifford Brown. And how did you make the the somewhat unlikely seeming move from trumpet to the bass? I uh, played trombone, uh, started going into the bass club, <laughs> played that equally badly. Uh, and then it was decided that I should get off brass instruments, uh, quit while I was behind. Uh, and uh, so I started playing the bass, and uh, that was quite the change. And uh, Did you start on upright? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I came to electric bass later on. So my, only, my first introduction to that instrument was the double bass. And uh, so far, we're still friends. We, we still fight at times. We still have our or off days, but it's still a great challenge to try to do. Do you find, or did you find, around the time of making that switch, I, I often wonder whether people feel like they hear better in a particular register. So, you know, people who play exclusively the baritone saxophone or the soprano saxophone or something like that, if if you find you have a tendency toward hearing that part of the music with more acuity, maybe, or or feel more comfortable there, and that makes the bass a better fit for you. Maybe. I did notice that my voice dropped, <laughs> so it helped a great deal. No, um, maybe. Maybe that I never really thought about that. Um, something about the bass being present in many different kinds of music, and at a fairly early age I realized uh, how the bass had a very important role in what was going on. It wasn't just thumping away in a mindless fashion, but it really had a lot to do with it. And as you started to listen to different recordings of different bass players, I could see how they were sometimes controlling what was going on, or at least definitely anchoring what was going on. And and I was very attracted to that. I remember the first time hearing uh, Ron Carter play in those Miles Davis groups from the 60s. And I mean, there's many other bass players before then, but definitely listening to that was an astonishing revelation for me that I still find fascinating. Another thing that I found interesting was that the music I'm talking about, about right now is all kind of mainstream, or certainly when I started listening to it, it was very mainstream jazz. But I also do remember uh, going to um, uh, an art gallery in downtown downtown Ottawa, in the, in the uh, sort of the old uh, old part of the town, and there was um, a Dutch group playing free jazz. And uh, I'm trying to remember, it was Martin Altina, bass player, and. It was one of these things as a room about twice the size of the room we're sitting in now. We probably would hold uh, 50 people packed to the gills. Uh, but it was an art gallery. There was art in the wall, and there's maybe 20 or 30 chairs. And I don't know how many of us were there. It was probably a Sunday night, and they were playing totally acoustically. And there was an oboe player, and Walter Wirbos was playing trombone. And it was a quintet, and it was my first experience to more free form improvisation. I loved it. It was amazing. It was just, again, to hear, oh, here are these instruments that I've heard in other contexts. Hearing them now in this context was quite the revelation for me. And hearing it live was the fact that I was sitting from here to the door, away from these musicians, playing totally acoustically, 
doing all kinds of things that I'd never imagined happening before or imagined happening in a musical context. And it was great. It was the way it was unfolding. So I would say that for me, I was lucky in having these little bits of uh, input and discovery because it just sort of kept opening my ears and and kept me being really engaged in the music in how music was developing. I want to make sure for the sake of the listeners, too, that they know that your career is not just centered in the world of jazz, but spans into the classical world and world yes. beat music and right. many other areas. When Do you remember when you started to think about music as something more than uh, even something you were passionate about, but as something that you might decide to dedicate yourself to in a more rigorous way? Well, I wasn't very good at sports. Still no good at sports. Um, and uh, I come from a family of country doctors, so... I remember my father saying, being very worried about the fact that I was thinking of being a musician or studying music at university. I think I was uh, uh, trying to placate him, maybe placate myself, by when I when I studied at junior college, I was taking sort of a health sciences or a or a pure and applied science course at the same time, and I was, I guess, always somewhat interested in computers. You know, at that time, the computers that were, it was the Commodore 64. That was my first yeah. computer. The Commodore PET, the Commodore oh, 64. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. The, I had a 64, and right before it was the VIC 20 that my neighbors had. Okay. I so that was a big deal. So I was interested in that, but more interested in music. Uh, and I'm sure there was, I at some stage, I thought, I want to try to make this work. And. In the 90s, I had the good fortune and honor of studying with Gary Peacock. And one of the things he talked to me about is the... He kind of put it out, laid it on, laid it in front of me in terms of, well, you have to make a decision as to what you want to be doing. And if you want to make a decision to dedicate yourself to playing this instrument and playing it in a creative way and finding your voice. And it was quite the statement because it wasn't promising me that anything was going to work out. It was the challenge, throwing down the gauntlet, that if you want to do it, you have to be serious about doing it. And that had a very profound effect upon me. So I think I, I was interested in trying to see how far I could go with it. Thus far, it's been working out. Um, I've had students ask me, have you ever thought about quitting? And I, I would say, well, not this week. <laughs> but there are times that, you know, it, it's an ongoing challenge, I think, for many people.
Will you talk about your school experience, uh, your college experience, I should say? I studied classical music here in Ottawa. And I also, I've always studied jazz as well as classical music. Uh, there has always been a very active jazz scene in Ottawa, certainly when CBC was more active in town, recording people. So I was very lucky in being mentored by a great number of very fine players from here. Roddy Elias, who's a great guitar player. Dave Hildinger, who is a very fine pianist. He's an American who came up to teach at the University of Ottawa. Um, uh, Huey O'Connor, who's an alto sax player in town, who's probably in his 80s now. And there's various other people, Vernon Isaac, who's an old, an old Texas tenor player who apparently maybe he played with Bird or he knew Bird or something like that. So having that mentoring process was really good. So I went to school here at Ottawa U uh, in classical bass as well as jazz. Then I went on and did a, a master's degree at Indiana University in Bloomington. And there I was, again, studying with a couple of classical bass teachers as well as studying with David Baker. And that was a tremendous uh, eye-opener for me or ear-opener in terms of working and being in that world, the Midwest, the whole uh, bebop approach to things, the being completely... Uh, doused in the music of uh, Wes Montgomery or Freddie Hubbard or jazz messengers and people like that, and working with Baker, who has had a, quite a, a varied history and everything like that. So I got to do some really good playing, and I learned an awful lot at that time, and it was definitely getting my butt kicked pretty seriously, and it was quite the eye-opener. When I came back uh, to Canada, I, thanks to the uh, Canada Council for the Arts, uh, for people who don't know the Canada Council for the Arts, it's kind of like the National Endowment, except I think way better. <laughs> right, except functional in some way. Except, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's had its challenges, but, but the Canada Council is an amazing agency that uh, provides funding for Canadian artists of all styles. And I... I was uh, uh, given some grants by them, and I was able to study with uh, Gary Peacock for two periods of study, and I also was able to study with um, uh, Polly Danielson in Sweden as well as Andrew Jormin in Sweden. So those were definitely music, career, and life-transforming events to, to be able to study with people of that caliber and to to get the input and perspective from those people. Gary has such a varied history of playing with people like Albert Eiler. Everyone knows him very much from playing with um, Keith Jarrett, but he played with so many other people over the years. It's astonishing. Played with Miles, um, Joe Henderson, with Chick Corea, with uh, Paul Blay, you name it. He's played with so many people as well as playing free music with Albert, uh, Albert Eiler. Both Anders and Pale present a completely different perspective, I would say a European perspective, to the the role of tradition in terms of playing the bass instrument, and both of them are really well known definitely in Europe and to to a certain extent in North America, and getting their perspective was, was fascinating. Can you... Can you be slightly more concrete about that? I, people always talk about studying with kind of established masters, so, and I'm particularly interested in the case of Gary Peacock. Can you give us some detail, some examples that, that spring to your mind, if any do, about specific things he might have said or or reasons it's different studying with someone like that, things you can get only from a person like that? I think it's something that's tied in with their overall experience of playing their instrument. Uh, 
and playing music in general. When I studied with Gary, I was very influenced by the Standards Trio. And which is the band with uh, Jarrett and Dijonette. And right. Yeah. And that was sort of a little bit at the beginning of their, when they were really becoming extremely popular and Gary was touring all over the place with them. And you were in your late 20s by this point or so? Or something like that. Something like yeah, that. I'd have to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to pin you I down too much. <laughs> I, was at, I was four at the time. <laughs> right, exactly. I was a child a, prodigy. Child prodigy. <laughs> My mom had to come. No, just kidding. Um, and so I, I guess I had what I thought was an idea of what I wanted to work on. Gary had me really working on the nature of melody. He had me buy some books by uh, Western European theorists and composers on on melody. I remember this book by Ernst von Tosch, T-O-C-H, called The Shaping Forces of Music, and it had to do with the whole idea of melody. What is a melody? The melody line. And he also, Gary had me also thinking about looking at a tune and understanding tonality, understanding the the force or the pull of tonality in a piece and how a melody note can be uh, very constant within a certain musical context and quite dissonant within another musical context and how one plays off of that, sort of the use of tension and release. And as we know, we may not know it... Uh, Theoretically, but on a certain emotional level, we can be very affected by the tension release, tension and release in a melody line versus a bass line in a whole piece of music, and we can definitely feel that. Uh, and I think that's very important. So I I spent a lot of time working with Gary on that. We really didn't talk about how to play the bass. We talked more about just how music is put together and how it works, and. Um, he talked a lot. We played some. And now that we're talking about it now, Jason, I think, well, I need to go back and, and listen to those tapes again because it's been a good deal of time. One of the interesting things about what Gary did for me was he had me do certain... Uh, I took notes, and I have some exercises that he gave me to, to try out. And one of the things he told me was, don't expect results tomorrow. You know, these are things you can work at, and maybe you can see some results weeks, months, maybe years down the road. It'll take a while for some of these things to work their way into what you are doing. And as you find your own musical path, your own musical voice, some of the things that I'm talking about will have more resonance than others. And I thought that was really interesting, again, from the point of view of sharing what he knew. It wasn't about... He is this famous bass player, but he was very open to sharing ideas and 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 at the same time presenting some ideas that I would have to go and work on myself. He's not going to provide the solutions. I think a good teacher doesn't necessarily just provide the solutions, but provide the opportunity for an individual to find the solutions themselves, depending on what they need. So that's definitely what Gary showed me, and I, I would say now, I was thinking about it yesterday, um, just how uh, the things that he talked about back then still have a resonance for me now, which I find really profound and, and really quite moving in that sense. It's not as though I've moved past what he talked about. I still find that there's an influence on some of the things that he has said over the years. Similarly with Anders and Polly, they they also had things to say. 
So I find that really fascinating in terms of, uh, I guess it keeps me wanting to practice the bass and try to find out more. And it also keeps me wanting to listen to music, both tradition and non-tradition. So the more I find myself listening to or playing more adventurous music, I also find myself going back and checking out some other people. Uh, as I have over the years, but I find myself going back and checking out people. At the same time, I'm really interested in, in listening to what other people are doing. So on the way over here in the car, I was listening to a new CD by uh, Jonathan Blake, really fine drummer in, in New York, and I, I was just, I almost wanted to pull over the car because I just thought, wow, this sounds really neat. It's so nice to hear what different people are doing. Yeah, it's a great record. Yeah. That Blake record. It's 11th hour or something like yes, that? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because as you continue to develop as a bass player and as you listen to more music, you get a chance. Music is one of those wonderful things where you get a chance to go back with fresh ears. So you may have heard yes. you know, Don Bias and Slam Stewart when you were nine years old, but if you listen to them again now, you have a whole different set of experiences and tools Absolutely. with which to listen to that yeah. music. I feel it's the same way with many things, reading a book the second or third time. I often go back and, and read uh, some books or some poetry by Michael Andachi, for example. And there's so much there that I missed the first couple of times. And I just pick it up and go, wow, this is amazing. Um, and I find that fascinating, that there's always, there seem to be layers, more layers to be uncovered, as long as I'm open to uncovering them. And I feel as though that's part of the challenge as a musician, is not to become closed. On one hand, I really want to work on my own thing and try to perfect what it is I'm working on. But at the same time, I'm really interested in finding out what some other people did and why it's still relevant. So rediscovering again for the first time, if that, that's a stupid thing to say, but, <laughs> but that sense of rediscovering something as though it's the first time, an old recording, perhaps Slam Stewart and Don Bias, perhaps Pops Foster, uh, or perhaps uh, other things, you know, like um, Freedom Suite, you know. That's a really great thing. That's really great. And listening to it again, I think it's Oscar Pettiford, if I'm not mistaken. It's amazing. It's still, and I find it uh, a challenge to make sure I take time to listen to things. I, guess I've, I know I've had conversations with uh, colleagues about the... Uh, the iPod generation that everyone owns, everyone has on their iPod the complete works of so-and-so, but have they listened to it? Right. <laughs> you know, 
It's like having Ulysses on your bookshelf or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's so much there. Uh, and one just needs to take the time to enjoy it and get into it and, and check it out. And whatever, sure. You know? uh, I'll just mention apropos of not too much, but since you mentioned uh, Michael Ondaatje's name and yesterday was Buddy Bolden's birthday that I think everyone should read Coming Through Slaughter, which I think oh, is... Yeah. Uh, Oh, that's a great, yes. Just brilliant, yeah. Yes, brilliant, yes. Brilliant. I think Michael Andachi, there's lots of books by him you could read and just get so much out yeah, of. Yeah, you won't go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really lovely. And that's that's something that I enjoy doing in the summer. I don't have as much time to read during the school year, but there's nothing like, you know, settling into a book. It's like setting, settling into a really good record. Yeah. Record. Oh, just showed me. <laughs> Something that I found interesting, actually, Jason, was I was speaking with um, Mark Copeland some months ago. He was in town playing in the uh, Ottawa Jazz Festival, and we went for, to have lunch. And uh, his enthusiasm was quite fascinating. He was telling me about a new pressing of the Village Vanguard Sessions. Right? I think it was the Japanese pressing or something mm-hmm. like that. And in that pressing, for some reason, the bass is really loud. And uh, so he said, you should check it, check it out because what Scott LaFerro was doing. And uh, so he actually we sent should it mention to this me. is uh, Bill Evans' uh, yes. Vanguard Sessions. Yeah, because yes. there are several famous albums called the Vanguard Sessions. Yes, so, you're yeah. right. Yes, the Village Vanguard Sessions with the Bill Evans trio of Paul Motion, the late, great Paul Motion and, and Scott LaFerro. And he was going on about how we had a complete new appreciation for that, listening back to it. And I think, how many times has he listened to that? And how many times have I listened to that? He's probably listened to it way more than I have. But still, he can get into it and still find more things into it. And just by having the bass a little bit louder, he's fun- he's discovering new things. So I think that's, uh, to me, I'm fascinated by that sense of discovery and that sense of openness to keep listening back to things to find out what's going on. I want to come back to this idea you talked about of a teacher providing a path rather than an answer. Uh, you're an educator yourself. In fact, you uh, teach at a school I briefly went to in the cave at uh, Crane School of Music. Uh, no, Get out of no town. Relation. You went to Crane? I did. And, uh, wow. Yeah. When? <laughs> in the early 90s. Why? Wow, this is me. Well, why? No, yes. I didn't say why. No. Why is a very fine question. <laughs> I know you didn't intend it but to come out of your an, mouth. That's but... another blog topic. <laughs> yes, exactly. That'll be another internet uh, interview. <laughs> that's the, uh, that'll be the DVD extras for this interview. It's the why, why I went to Crane. Why? What happened? <laughs> but, but let me ask you about that. The, there's a, and in fact, I have a pretty big problem with this, and it's not Crane specific, it's institutionally specific. Uh, there's, I think, a great move toward codifying and presenting as complete some concept of jazz, generally based on the 40s through the early 60s, that happens in a lot of music schools. And I really like what you had to say about the idea of providing students a path to their own answers rather than saying, this is how it's done. But obviously, you have to teach inside a curriculum. And so I'm kind of wondering, how do you how do you figure out what your role is as an educator when you're working with students and how flexible you can be versus how much you have to impart? I tread carefully. Well, what I find challenging about teaching people is that I am teaching an individual. It's one-on-one. I find that interesting because it is about any sort of a human relationship for the cor- for the over a duration of four years, I'm working 
fairly intensely with an individual on their strengths and weaknesses. And the challenge for me is to help that student find their path or figure out a way of finding solutions. And the challenge for them is to do the work and to step into the unknown. I try to, as far as curriculum, I try to find some commonalities that make sense. So as far as playing the double bass, playing this instrument, I'm concerned with great sound, great intonation, great style, musicality, listening, etc. I try to point out, I also teach some classical bass to people as well. So I try to point out that for me, I, I view that playing in any musical ensemble, it's a social occasion. It shouldn't be work. It should be a social occasion. It should be enjoyable. And in any social occasion, there is interaction. And it's not about the individual. It's about the ensemble. It's about togetherness. And in any situation like that, one has to understand the milieu in which one is participating. So it's a musical language. It's a musical style. It's a dialect, whatever you want to. So playing Baroque music is different from playing free jazz. I think it's safe to say. Although, having said that, Barry Guy and Maya Holmberger put out a record of Baroque music, and it sounds great, and then the next cut, it's free jazz. So right. <laughs> whatever. Um, which I love. It's great. Um, so what I'm trying to impart on people is try to give them the basics and then give them guidelines and where to where they can start unfolding things and to stop and to forever be curious. I teach a couple of pedagogy courses at Crane that are intended uh, for string players, violin, viola, and cello, cello players who are studying bass for a couple of semesters so they can be music teachers. And I make a point of giving them something different to listen to every week that involves the bass so they can just open their ears. So yes, we'll, I will play them really traditional standard double bass, classical double bass repertoire, which they need to know. But then I start branching out and branching out to different things so they can hear the bass in different contexts. So by the second semester, I'm playing them things by Barry Guy. I'm playing some things by Mark Dresser, um, different people like that. Uh, I play them um, some Yosunador, which is not double bass playing, but it is bass function. Uh, playing some Cachao Lopez, um, from different people from all over the place, just to give them a different taste. Some country music. Uh, there's this this guy who plays from from uh, down south who plays uh, pedal steel and guitar. His name is Junior Brown. Mm. Um, so I play him a tune that is pretty corny, but it, the bass function is pretty strong. Um, and so the more I can open up people's ears, they don't have to like it has nothing to do with liking. It's more just try this food. Try this. Try a bite of this for a sec. You may not like it right away, but maybe you'll you'll develop a taste for a different kind of food. And if I can just show people that I'm open to that, maybe they're going to allow themselves to be open to it. Um, as far as teaching the base students, when I start in, in sort of the earlier years of instruction, it's a little bit more codified. But as they get more advanced, I start to spread it out and see where they're going to go. And I try to encourage them to listen to things. Uh, for a student who is in fourth year who's studying more jazz with me, I want him to try to listen to all kinds of different people, 
to listen to groups that have no bass in it. You know, one of the things they say, well, I want to check out the hundreds of amazing recordings out there with uh, the Paul Motions trio with Joe Lovano and Bill Frizzell. And it's pure melody. It's absolutely pure melody. And there seem to be no bar lines and it goes on forever. And you never want a tune to stop because it just keeps unfolding. And that's, you can learn an awful lot about music and even how a bass works by listening to something like that. Because it's, you notice with no bass, this is what it sounds like. So there's a reason why Paul Motion didn't have a bass player, I think, because he found it worked really well with those guys. So the more I can maintain an open approach, the better. But it is, it is sometimes a challenge to make it work. Can you talk a little bit about, um, as someone who's kind of inside the the institutional side of the music, the the role you see institutions playing in the in the furtherance of jazz these days? That's a good question. Hopefully, an institution can provide some guidance and be a launching pad for people to go farther. I would say for myself, I've learned much more in the many years that I've been outside of school than when I was in school. I'm not taking anything away from the teachers or the places where I studied. It's just that I would would like to say, to their credit, those teachers and those institutions instilled in me the curiosity to keep learning. So I want to encourage in my teaching, at an institutional level, I want to encourage the ability for the students to keep pushing themselves afterwards. If nothing else, if I can give them the tools or give them the options on where to go afterwards, maybe that's that will that will uh, give them something to start from. So I don't see what I'm teaching them in the four years that I see them as being the be-all and end-all or the end. Hopefully, it's going to be the beginning of something. The fact that some of my students have been accepted, uh, uh, I have a couple of students who are accepted this uh, fall in a master's program at uh, to study at uh, NYU with um, Drew Grass. 
that's that's very nice because it means that they're playing they've they have played to a certain level that is that uh, and the institution has recognized that and they're going to try to go farther pushing themselves so i think it's it's a fine line in the whole world of institution institutionalized stuff and i haven't quite found a, an answer to it I, i would believe that some institutions are a little bit more uh fixed or closed or square in terms of their not square as in uh more just more defined in terms of their their rationale their approach their aesthetic compared to some other institutions i feel fortunate that the ones where i'm teaching there isn't an open there is an open approach but hopefully any student if they want to go study somewhere they can see that as being the introduction to further study i would say going to grab this air conditioner so i can take it out your uh, last two recordings both uh feature one of my favorite human beings and piano players Marilyn Crispell and i wonder if you could just say a few words about those projects and uh, with who and Mar- <laughs> oh Marilyn. <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry i thought you said someone uh, else and i thought no he wasn't on the recording <laughs> sorry this might have to okay. edit that one won't you <laughs> With you responding to that question with, with who? Yeah, who? I might. I might edit that out. Okay, you can edit this, right? <laughs> yes, I can. No, she was just in the studio that day. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, that's who right. She was. I can't remember. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> yes, one of the records was with Marilyn. The other one was with uh, Nancy Walker. Oh, that's right. No, yeah. that's right. Marilyn is a lovely person, a really fabulous, warm human being, and we're we're in contact fairly fairly regularly. And I like the idea that I can just call her up and we can have a grand old chat, but whatever. Um, she's, uh, she's such a, a kind person and a warm person and a very musical person. And oh, now we're going to have two seconds of silence. Um, and she is so, again, willing to share and try things out. It's not about her ego or anything like that. I mean, she's played with so many astonishing people and, as soon as she starts playing, there's such a conviction to what she does that I find just totally inspiring. And it brings you along. You are transported along with her. And I find that just a gorgeous thing. I, I treasure our moments to play together because it's it's uh, new discoveries every time. And we can play something that's really, really, really intense or something that's very delicate. And the conviction is there... Uh, commitment or conviction is there right from the very first note or before the first note and that's so making that recording with her was was a total joy it wasn't work and i i would say that i learned a great deal about recording i mean i've done a few recordings over the years but i learned a great deal more by working with her on that and i'd love to be able to do something with her again
This is a, a rare experience for me where, although I have heard uh, your music because I did some uh, listening online, well, I've heard you in the past and did some listening online the last couple of days, I haven't actually listened repeatedly to both the records that you handed me when you got here, which is what I always do for what? this show. I know, I know, believe me. It, We're I done. Think, I think... <laughs> That's funny. That actually did happen one time. Really? That's yeah, a story I'm not going to <laughs> I'm not going to relate because we've since uh, we've since patched things up that artist and I. But right. that uh, that did happen once. Asshole. Um, <laughs> uh, but you gave me two records when you came over. The one we just mentioned with uh, Merrill and Nick Fraser called the Geggy Project, and also uh, the Geggy Trio with Donnie McCaslin, an album called Across the Sky, uh, which Nick Fraser is also on. And as you mentioned, Nancy Walker. Can you tell me about these two records? Which uh, they both came out in 2010. Is that right? Yes. I guess so. You're, I guess you're right. I'll have to look at the back of them to find out. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm right about it. Okay. Well, I had spoken to Marilyn for a while about doing a recording with her. And I had a bunch of music I wanted to work with her on. I'd had the opportunity of working with her in the past in a couple of duo situations. And uh, Nick Fraser is a really dear friend of mine. He's from Ottawa. He lives in Toronto and he plays with lots of different people. He has the ability to play very much in the tradition and very much outside the tradition. He has a great number of records under his own name and, and also in a cooperative group called Drumheller out of Toronto. And he plays very free music and he's he just lots of music happening all the time. And he's very open. And I just knew that getting him together with Marilyn would be an easy fit. It wouldn't be work, it'd be play. And uh, so I had spoken to Marilyn about this for a while, and it was simply a question of finding the dates, uh, sorting out the schedule so everyone should get, could get together and play. As far as the other recording was concerned, I'd, again, one of these things had planned down the road to do a certain recording, and it turned out that Donnie happened to be free earlier than planned. The two recordings are different insofar as the trio recording with Marilyn and Nick is more free, more open open approach. There again, a lot of my compositions and a great number of just spontaneously improvised segments that we did in, in the moment. The record with uh, the record, the wax cylinder with Donnie and and Nick and Nancy Walker was the tunes were more. Uh, contemporary jazz more structured in a sense although we were going into unstructured territory i should talk to you about nancy walker she's a really fine pianist from toronto who's played with lots of different people she has her own bands that are great nick and nancy and i have been playing uh, at the jam sessions of the ottawa jazz festival as a house rhythm section for a great number of years and it's great to play with these guys because they can play in any direction and we have lots of fun again uh with donnie um I had played with him in another context, in a trio context with a different drummer. And we had lots of fun. It was really easy. And he was such an open person about uh, playing. And basically, uh, when I asked him if he wanted to do a recording with me, he said, yeah, sure, dude. Which is 
kind of Donnie. Um, and again, a lovely person in terms of openness and wanting to play and playing in the moment and being totally committed to what's going on in the moment. So when we played together with Nick and Nancy, it was, it was really, really fun. We've had the opportunity to play since then, and it's always amazing to see how when the four of us get together, we're continuing our conversation that we started however many years ago. It's, it's a continuing process. It's not as though we're stepping back a few steps and moving forward. It seems to we keep progressing forward, which is, I love that sense. When you were working on the material for these two records, were you writing with the particular players in mind? Did you already know who was going to be on these records? And I didn't know the particular players. I was writing with certain concepts in mind, yes. Um, I pride myself at really trying to be very informed about the musicians who I'm going to play with. So I, I've checked out a lot of Marilyn over the years from her own um, solo recordings who were, her, when she, or also her quartet recordings when she was with um, Anthony Braxton to various other things along the way. I think some duo recordings with, I think, Barry Guy, for example, or some other people like that. So I know her playing fairly well. And so I was definitely imagining her touch on the piano playing some of these pieces. And I chose my material accordingly. With Donnie, I think it was uh, a similar process. Not the same tunes. Some of the same tunes, actually. I think there's one tune that crosses over. But I had was thinking of other music and I was writing for a particular uh, group of players or a particular aesthetic, but not, I wouldn't say specifically for those players. I feel fortunate with Nick Fraser in the sense that I could, you know, give him a glass of water and he'll make something musical out of it. He'll, he, he's always fresh and open with ideas. What I liked about both recordings was the fact that all the participants were really open and comfortable making suggestions and all their suggestions were towards the common goal of, of what the sound of the recording were, was. It wasn't about their solo or their this. It was about, let's try this idea in order to, to move this into a different area. And I love that sense that the pieces were evolving and people were staying open to ideas. And so that line, those lines of communication were, were always open and I really appreciated that. In their, in their playing. So I don't feel as though it's my recording with my vision. Well, yes, I paid the bills. But uh, I definitely feel both recordings, the music was mine. Maybe I had some, I came up with the inspiration for some ideas, but I feel as though the end results were definitely ensemble things. And I love that, that sense.
My guest is the bassist and educator, John Gage. It's been such a pleasure to meet you. I'm really glad you took yes. the time to do this. Thanks Thanks for coming here. Thanks for coming to town and come back sometime. I will. Particularly in February when it's like minus 41. Yeah, that sounds like the perfect time. We could find a little terrace somewhere and have a <laughs> iced coffee. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you, John. music from John Geggy, uh, an Ottawa-based bass player. Thanks very much to John for coming on the show, and also to Renee Yoxen and Craig Peterson, who let me use their house for my Ottawa interviews. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Quas. Thank you so much for listening. Now get out there, if you would, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.